Hello, dear listener. Before we begin our story, I'd like to bring you a message from Magic Mind, who is sponsoring tonight's episode. Magic Mind is a morning ritual drink, sort of like a healthy, milder energy drink. You can pair it with your morning coffee or tea, or however else you like to get your caffeine, or drink it alone, and you'll see the benefits right away. I know I did. Although, I've noticed that they do begin to compound a little bit as you drink it each day. Sort of like athletes have Gatorade, Magic Mind is a beverage for creative people, uh, for entrepreneurs, anyone basically with a lot to do who needs a clear brain functioning its best all day long. I normally drink at least two or three cups of coffee in the morning, usually another in the afternoon or maybe a black tea or a soda or something, but since I've started drinking Magic Mind, I find that I can get the same energy with much less coffee and thus without all the jitters and tension and anxiety that comes from over-consuming caffeine. It lasts all day, seven to eight hours. It has a base of matcha tea, which is a slower release of caffeine, but in fact, it actually includes a whole variety of natural ingredients designed to do more than just wake you up, including nootropics and adaptogens to increase your attention span and improve your memory, while also reducing stress, which is sort of the opposite of what coffee does, for me anyways. Basically, uh, when I drink Magic Mind in the morning, my brain just sort of feels a little clearer throughout the day, a little more alert. Each one is a little two-ounce shot, but honestly, they taste so good I wouldn't mind if they came out as a full-size drink. Uh, if you go to magicmind.com slash Nolan, that's my name, N-O-L-A-N, you can get 56% off your subscription or 20% off a one-time purchase using my code NOLAN20. Once again, that's magicmind.com slash Nolan. Use the discount code NOLAN20. They have 100% money-back guarantee, so there's no risk to trying it out. I enjoy it. I highly recommend it to anyone who feels like they need that extra boost in energy and clarity without the crash of other drinks with all their sugar and artificial ingredients. Thanks. The Werewolf of Prairie Grove It was a small town in Illinois, though not that small. Not so small that you didn't have ten houses to your right and ten houses to your left and another row across the street and sidewalks and street lamps at either end of the block, except on the outskirts, where the buildings thinned and decayed, rotted first from the inside like a black cavity, and as you moved farther from the still brick-paved main street, the weeds along the gray gravel-shouldered road grow taller and thicker, and the people scarcer. 
the neglect more apparent until the skeletons begin to show, rickety fire-licked two-by-four joints, the houses like dead animals in the encroaching grass. The insides picked clean, as if the town was in retreat, folding back in on itself, fleeing east ahead of a besieging wilderness, while the Nickerson house, no more than a foundation and a crumbling chimney at the spear point of civilization, stood sentinel over the vast night-dead prairie and the dense woods beyond, and the land beyond the trees, rising and rolling westward to the wide mud-brown river, bubble-specked surface rolling ever onward beneath the crystalline moon and the rollicking train-racked iron trestle bridge which spanned it, thin crazed and lonesome banshee whistle, needle-piercing the languid summer dark beyond the far bank. Evan Sanders crouched on the roof outside his bedroom window. Tomorrow was the first day of fifth grade, his last year at Farnsworth Elementary. Even at nearly eleven, he was already nostalgic. The summer was over. The heat would persist for several weeks. The first morning frost would not come before the second week in October. But the season of warm things was receding now before his eyes, slipping away over the dark western horizon. The season of sleeping in, of waking up early to play video games, of 8am lawnmowers and cicadas by 9, the pop-sizzle rush of firecrackers over front lawns, and the pleasant itch of sprinkler wet grass clippings on bare feet. Water balloons burst at the spigot or across sunburnt backs, ice-cold movies on Sunday afternoons and waiting in traffic for the zoo to open, knees scraped raw by stucco-bottomed public pools, days spent morning to dusk at the baseball field, not even breaking for lunch, chasing the ball all over the outfield since there were not more than six or seven boys there most days, pack it away in a box for next year, pack it still glowing white like a July 3.30 in the attic until May, in time, it will be a season of bonfires and smoky air, of cold mornings and colder nights, fog creeping down from the hills outside of town, and uneasy winds blowing through brittle corn stalks. But when he boarded the bus in the morning, it was nearly 90 degrees. A deadened period. Old world fading, new world not yet born. The school was air-conditioned like a refrigerator through the second week of September. He'd step outside for recess and begin to inflate to his full size, face twinkling, fingers and toes thawing. An asphalt lot off the back of the school had been freshly painted for Foursquare and Hopscotch. Beyond the lot was the playground, split down the middle into an old iron and wood section and a new modern plastic section. A playing field past that, cut weakly to prevent it from melting back into the prairie around it. A dense line of trees ran all along the western border, hiding the lands beyond from schoolyards of students for as far back as anyone in town could remember. The first Saturday of the school year finally arrived, and all of the boys reconvened at the ball field near the edge of town, splitting off into teams and moving about as if conducting a ritual to resurrect the lost season. But the air was all wrong. The feeling was gone. The hazy sense of endlessness, of three months of empty calendar to cross off, was replaced by a barely suppressed urgency, standing in the outfield, watching the sun cross the sky, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 
Then it was a whole week of sitting behind desks, and an endless string of weeks waiting beyond that, on and on till December, which is unthinkably distant from here, never mind next summer. The cicadas croaked in the heat, the boys played and sweated, and nobody suggested they break for lunch. The traffic hum and town bustle sounded a million miles away. When the wind blew right, you'd swear they'd never existed at all. But as the afternoon wore on, the rosters began to thin. The same hitters appeared over and over. One by one, the players walked off the diamond, waving goodbye. Some stooped through the gaps in the underbrush, sneakers slapping down well-worn shortcuts through the woods. Others mounted bikes, plucked and righted from the gleaming metal pile along the right field line, and shot off like an arrow over country roads between tall fields of corn ready for the harvest. Back to town, to streetlights and civilization, to parents and beds and trimmed lawns and neatly ordered front doors, closed tight against whatever waited out there in the half-mapped hinterlands. By the time the sun dropped behind the trees, there remained only five boys. They took turns lobbing each other meatballs and seeing who could hit more home runs. Only Tony, Ryan, and Jack had any chance, and Jack only managed to clear the fence once. Tony was the best among them, always picked first whenever teams were divided. When he hit the ball, you knew it was him, the way the ball came screaming off his bat. He was the only one there to ever have been intentionally walked. But today, Ryan, not normally known for his hitting, was keeping pace with him, going nearly swing for swing, the orange SF embroidered on the black field of the Giants hat he always wore, visible even from the outfield. Evan took his turns, tried valiantly, but knew what he was and what he was not, and a home run hitter he was not. So he patrolled left field instead, tracking down fly balls and fielding grounders, arcing balls back toward the mound to keep the action moving. In the summer, they played till the fireflies came out, till they could no longer see the ball. In the woods behind the left field fence, Evan saw a line of them begin to blink. The field itself was still awash in the last golden light of the day, the outfield a blanket of mature dandelions shimmering like enchanted lavender. The sort of purplish summer twilight which seems like it will last forever if you can only keep your eye on it. But the woods were dark, and their shadow grew longer by the minute, as the darkness between the trees threatened to spill out across their game, smothering this final lingering crystal of summer for good. It felt like a predator at his back, a jungle cat waiting to pounce, waiting for just this moment. How much longer could he ignore it? He had to turn, face it, it was his only hope of keeping it at bay. He had to turn. Would it already be on him when he did? He turned and found the woods and the darkness in the same place he'd left them. No tiger, no bobcat claws sinking into his torso. Only the sound of the morning doves. Except, did something just... Did something just... move? Ding! He could tell from the sound of the bat that it was hit well. Evan! 
His name drifted out from the infield like a dream, four voices in semi-harmony, on the late summer air, calling to him from June, from some Tuesday in the middle of July, from another life, beckoning him back. He flipped his hips and made half-heartedly for the warning track, chucked his glove up at the ball as it sailed past. It flew over the yellow plastic rim of the fence, flew clear into the forest beyond. Evan only heard it land, soft plod into a mattress of pine needles and a decade of half-decayed detritus. The distant whooping of his friends only emphasized just how alone he was, as if he were sailing out into some uncharted sea, taking one last glance at the harbor before it vanished over the horizon. He did not want to go get it. Go get it, came the call. We need it. Up the fence, a clamoring he went, chain link rattling and jangling as he jammed the rubber toes of his sneakers into the rust-speckled diamonds. He dropped hard onto the packed mud on the other side and felt instantly that he had landed in another world. With the fence between him and his friends, baseball suddenly seemed a very distant concern, the way urgent secular concerns of the morning seem so petty when illness strikes in the evening. He couldn't see the ball, so he took a best guess and began walking. The musty trees brushed his shoulders with sap and brittle bark, and in ten million folds and ridges absorbed all sound from without, till even the voice in Evan's head seemed, to him, far too loud. They rose so tall that even with their stalwart trunks they bent and creaked up where they met the sky. He scanned the forest floor and found no sign of the ball, nor any evidence that he was even close. This was how the sun would set on his summer. No great diving catch, not scaling the fence to rob one of his friends of a home run, digging around in the dirt for a ball he'd never find. He searched until he was sure he'd long passed the distance the ball reasonably could have rolled, and then went twenty feet farther than that. There was a crackling in the air, a danger. It felt cold and immediate in his nostrils. But his eyes were nearly useless. By the time they adjusted to the darkness, it had grown even darker. That prey feeling had never left, and now it was stronger than ever. It felt as though he were being watched, but all of his senses told him he was alone. He stopped walking, held his breath, looked all around, and then retreated, sprinting out of the woods and around the foul pole, back onto the field. He'd hoped that his friends would have moved on and temporarily forgotten him, but they were all turned around and looking at him when he emerged. They really had needed that ball after all. He shrugged, trying not to betray the panic that had overcome him only a few seconds earlier. And that was that. A faint, translucent sliver of moon had appeared in the sky. The crickets were tuning up. They packed their gear in the hazy gray-blue twilight, which seemed to linger on and on. Ryan saw them first. Hey, who is that? Four adults had emerged from the forest, walking nearly shoulder to shoulder across the outfield grass. Two men and two women in loose unison. The men in rumpled suits and the women in dirty sundresses. 
They all wore identical masks, plastic lamb heads. The tufts of wool along the fringes glowed pastel pink in the fading light, matching the cotton candy clouds dashed across the endless expanse of Midwestern sky. The group seemed somehow more real than the rest of the world around them. They finally paused in right field, some thirty feet from the boys, and seemed to regard them, though to a person they were facing several degrees off-center, as if they were a part of some larger, invisible firing line, taking aim at a position just over Evan's shoulder. The boys' legs would not have worked if they tried to use them. Then the adults all took off their masks and tucked them under their arms. They were well-groomed, the men's hair coiffed. Late twenties, none older than their mid-thirties, certainly, though Evan could not have said so. To children, adults are simply adults. Well, he could spot a sixth grader from a seventh grader from a fifth grader without a second glance. All wore congenial, half-anesthetized smiles, flat eyes looking at nothing in particular. Watch you boys playing, said the one. Terrific stuff. You guys really can swing that bat, said another. The boys glanced at each other, but realized quickly that none felt comfortable keeping their eyes off of these people for very long. A man with electric blue eyes was looking right at Evan. His hair shone with pomade. You're pretty fast, huh? Nobody said anything else. Nobody moved. The lingering twilight would not linger much longer. A dog barked back in town far, far away, and a low mist spreading over the grass wrapped coolly around Evan's exposed ankles. Tony was the first to break the stillness, picking up and mounting his bike. The others followed suit, and the adults silently watched them file off the field. The clay diamond was glowing orange as the last light in the sky went out. Jack was the first to diverge. He was staying at his dad's condo in a new development outside of town. The streetlight at the entrance was the first they passed on their journey, and would be the last for some time. Not long after their number had been reduced to three, Evan hit a pothole in the pavement that nearly threw him from his bike. He gritted his teeth against the possibility, but within a minute his most pessimistic vision had come to pass. He had a flat tire. He knew the feeling well. This was his third of the summer. He stomped as the rubber began to thwump at the road, and the others stopped to check on him. Bummer, they said. That really sucks. You guys go on without me, said Evan. He did not know why he was saying it. He wanted the exact opposite. You sure? He glanced back over his shoulder down the road in the direction they'd come. Definitely. A beat of silence as the two with working bikes looked at each other. A cloud passed in front of the moon. Don't want to hold you guys up, too. They were already remounting their bikes, kicking pedals into place. Sorry, dude, they said. My mom is going to ground me if I'm not home for dinner. He could hear the tread of their tires for longer than he could see them. Doleful lament of an owl. He was alone. 
The trees arched over the roadside ditches here and met over the road, forming alternating stretches of tangled tunnels as the landscape rose and fell. Bullfrogs croaked in the little ditch creeks, hidden in the tall grass. The universe was a very big place, and Evan felt the full scale of it, the emptiness rushing into him, filling all the places in his chest where hope and lightness lived with a sucking void, replacing the vigor in his stomach with an icy dread. He was a very small thing. If the world so much as sneezed, he would be bucked off it and forgotten forever. He began to walk. Thwomp, thwomp, thwomp went the tire. He'd walked this way before, though, never at night. From here he guessed it would be an hour or more. His parents would be livid, but when they saw the flat, they'd understand. Till then, there was nothing to do but put his head down and walk. He squinted at the murky shapes ahead and all around him and bit his lip till it bled at the prospect of seeing another person somewhere among them. He could think of nothing worse. He'd rather turn around and find a mountain lion stalking him than come across a man just loitering in the gravel on the side of the road in the dark. Or one of those lamb people. Evan saw the masks staring at him from behind every tree. The visage was a shade too close to the real thing. The eyes of a plastic children's Halloween mask should not be so empty, so horribly black. The little tufts of wool on the head and the neck matted and flecked with little clumps of mud, the rounded muzzle glowing pale blue as the last light drained from the sky. A car passed him on its way back to town. It did not slow down. Evan kicked a rock, whiter than the line painted on the road, and when he caught up to it, he kicked it again. How far could he kick it? How many times before it skidded off the asphalt? As he walked, the trees fell away, and the night sky opened up like a great dome all around him. The air tasted fresher. The foam of his tennis shoes felt springier on the pavement. He lost the rock and the scrub along the shoulder and couldn't find a suitable replacement, so instead he began to whistle. But was that the wind in the cornfields or something more solid? As he walked, the walls of stalks closed in on either side of the road, three times his height, each row always melding into the next, and anything, anything could be back there in all that shadow or waiting in the next row. A pair of crows, helping themselves, flapped their wings and barked at Evan as he passed. Was something in the field following him? He stopped his whistling and quickened his pace. Were those footsteps on the road behind him? He stopped, turned, saw nothing, but the night was so dark that this did not necessarily mean that there was nothing there to be seen. From here, it was likely 45 minutes to his front door. He tried riding the bike again to see if he could. He could not. He passed an old fire-licked church whose doors had not been opened since before his birth. Half the siding was stripped from the modest bell tower like a gaping wound, exposing beams and wood rot. The windows were so dusty as to be opaque. He tilted his head back as he walked and found the Little Dipper and Orion's belt, and when his eyes returned to the muggy, steaming earth around him, he found himself at a crossroads. Another lonely highway, all but identical to the road he was walking on, running east and west.
It was unfamiliar to him, despite how many times he had come this way. Night can change the character of a place one has only known in the daylight so as to render it nearly unrecognizable, or perhaps he had always flown by the intersection on his bike and never stopped to pay it any mind. But the moonlit scene he now came upon seemed changed and set for some malevolent drama, wanting only its players, as if a whole audience were hidden in the cord with bated breath, waiting for the show to begin. As he approached, he heard an engine in the near distance. A few seconds later, headlights coming on from the west. An old car pulled up to the stop sign. Evan felt every pop and piston punch of the idling engine. He could see in the headlight backwash that it was black and rather plain. He was no expert, but guessed it was of 1950s or 60s vintage. Yellow headlights shone like stage lights on the intersection, awaiting a subject who had missed their mark. He could see nothing of the driver. Could they see him where he was? He thought not, but what if they turned this way? He would be caught directly in its beams. But the car did not turn, did not move at all, only sat, jostled about in place atop the power of its own motor. Evan wanted to dive between two rows of corn. Why was he so afraid of a car? He couldn't say, but it felt right that he should be. What were they waiting for? He wondered what his parents were doing. Suddenly, he hoped more than anything that their nerves had already collapsed, that they'd panicked and called the police. If he was lucky, they sent them to the baseball field. If he was lucky, they'd be passing through here any moment. The car rolled out into the intersection, as if the driver had merely lifted his foot from the brake. It made no indication which direction it might choose to go. The red taillights were hellish on the pavement when it stopped, steady drift of exhaust dissipating in the humidity, and then it turned and headed toward town. Somewhere far off, though not so far, a wolf called out to an unanswering and endless night. A wolf in Illinois? Evan was suddenly very cold and he did not know if it came from within or without, but it was no summer cold. It was much deeper, closer to the bone, and it lingered. He picked up his feet finally and made for home, feeling all the way as if he were being followed, even though he was quite certain he was not. Three things happened that fall which mark it forever in history and in the memories of all Prairie Grove residents old enough to remember. For one... The high school football team went downstate to play for the state title and lost, capping a Cinderella season with a thumping defeat at the hands of perennial powerhouse Milton East in what remains to this day the school's only appearance in the championship game. The water tower remains blank even now, the name of the town having been prematurely painted over and primed in anticipation of a victory and the chance to add home of the 1998 football state champions. But that was in December, when the fall turned quickly and bitterly into winter. The fall began early that year. On the night, Evan walked his flat-tired bike nearly three miles from the ball field to his home. 
That was the night that the police station received nearly a dozen calls from concerned residents who swore up and down that they heard a wolf. Nobody has ever been able to say for certain why he migrated so far south and on his own, but everyone who was around that fall knew somebody who knew somebody who claimed to have seen the wolf. The third thing that happened was that Ryan Tanley went missing. In fact, he never made it home from the ball field that Saturday night. His bike was found, half-submerged among the reeds in a muddy little creek along the side of the highway. Evan had passed the exact site, perhaps 20 or 30 minutes after Ryan would have reached it, and was not conscious in the slightest of anything out of the ordinary when he did. As soon as news began to spread the next morning, there were those who connected the disappearance to the reports of the wolf heard on the outskirts of town. By that afternoon, a hunting party of nearly 20 men was organized, and they scoured the woods until the sun set and found no trace of the boy or the animal. That night, it was heard again. No reports were filed with the police, but if you were walking the streets around sundown and listening close enough, you could have heard the sound of hundreds of locks softly clicking shut against the vast dark gathering in the east. Monday morning, an APB was sent as far as Chicago and Milwaukee and Des Moines. School was canceled, and instead, an open meeting was held in the gymnasium, which concluded with the organization and dispersal of three search parties to cover the outskirts of town. All day, several squad cars could be seen at the baseball field, and sometime after breakfast, one appeared in Evan's driveway. His mom called up to his bedroom. He spoke to the officer across the kitchen table, a towering, clean-cut man in his late twenties with an earnest, boyish face. He told them about their baseball game, about his flat tire, about the last he saw of Ryan. Had he mentioned anything strange, anything about not going straight home that night? No. Any fights with his parents, any other friends he was planning to meet? No, no. The officer was packing his notepad and preparing to leave when Evan remembered the four adults who'd come walking across the outfield in those uncanny animal masks. At this, his brow furrowed, a darkness fell over his features, and he hovered a moment above the chair, half sitting and halfway out the door, before fishing his pen and pad back out of his pocket and returning to his seat. He was there another half hour, trying to extract more information from the boy, though he'd already told almost all that he had to tell. If he would have turned and looked at his mother then, he would have been startled to find her face paler than he had ever seen it, and so frail that it was as if she had aged twenty years in the space of a minute. But he did not. The officer clipped his head on the chandelier over the kitchen table on his way out. When the door was shut and she had locked it behind him and watched his car turn the corner at the end of the block, she hugged her son and without another word spoken between them, allowed him to retreat back to his room and to his video games. When she heard his door shut, she began to cry, not for the first time that day and not for the last. Days passed, then weeks. The search parties slowed and then one day, nobody went out to look for the missing boy save his parents.
They would never express it, not even to each other, could barely even admit it to themselves. But they soon began to look back on those first few days with a perverse longing, the panic and fear-stricken hours, their world hanging in the balance with each passing minute, took on an almost halcyon glow during those endless, dragging weeks in which they felt nothing save for a gnawing emptiness, an all-consuming, hopeless despair. At no definitive point was either forced to confront the notion that their son might never come back, that they may simply never see him again. Over a slow and agonizing course of weeks, it morphed from an unthinkable impossibility to an unspeakable inevitability like a hot wax candle melting inside each of their stomachs. The urgent frenzy of those first few days was accompanied by a sense that their boy might be found in any passing car, that the phone might ring with good news at any minute. They were surrounded from the time they woke till the time they went back to sleep by their community. At least then, people had cared, or pretended to. Some could barely conceal their relief that it was not their son or daughter missing. By the end of September, nobody would speak to them for fear of saying the wrong thing. When Mrs. Tanley went to the grocery store, she felt their eyes on her, but people only ever seemed to meet her gaze by accident, and then, with pursed lips and a pathetic sympathy in their eyes, you poor thing. There are few things in life more gratifying than the ability to close your door on a tragedy that is not yours to bear. The children returned to school. Before long, rumors began to circulate that a werewolf had taken residence in the woods outside of town. Several students ended up in tears in the principal's office, inconsolable after so-and-so told them the werewolf had taken Ryan. His books and folders were still in his desk, gathering dust. The administration briefly considered holding a school-wide assembly to dispel these stories, but quickly decided that it would do more harm than good. It was said that the creature descended upon the town at night and stalked the streets looking for more children to carry off. No kid wanted to play outside anymore, even if their parents would have let them. Near the end of September, one of the third grade boys was sent to the principal's office after several girls in his class came back from recess, near hysterical because he told them he had seen Ryan outside his bedroom window the night before. His teacher asked him to apologize and explain that he had only been telling a story. We all deal with grief in different, sometimes unexpected ways, she said. But the boy would not recant. He would not change a word of his story. Not for his teacher, not for the principal. Not for his parents when the school called them at work to discuss this delicate matter. Not when they suggested he'd dreamt it or seen someone else who looked a little like the missing boy. No, Ryan had appeared at his window, hairier and dirtier than he looked in all those photos on the posters, but unmistakably himself, tapping on the glass and waving to the boy. Eventually, the issue simply had to be dropped. They told the boy that he was upsetting others when he spoke about it and asked him to please stop doing so. I don't know why, but when I saw him, I got real scared. I had an accident in my bed. 
It was bad enough when all of the kids thought that the creature had abducted, or, as it was sometimes implied in hushed tones, eaten the youngest Tanley. It gave parents an unspoken placeholder answer to a lot of questions that they could barely confront for themselves, let alone their children, at least until they were older, until the situation was less of a daily reality and more of a sad, surreal memory to be parsed and filed away. But now some of the boys in school were openly telling anyone who would listen that Ryan Tanley was not dead, was not even somewhere else, but was in fact himself now a werewolf, prowling the moonlit nights. Many of the students were so upset by this that it became nigh on impossible to finish a single school day without at least one traumatic interruption. Bobby Leadle stood at the perimeter of the basketball court, watching the fifth graders play, as they did every day. Suddenly, as if possessed, he streaked across the blacktop and stole the ball out from under Jack's hand, bringing the game to an abrupt halt. I want to play, he said. We already have teams. You can't do five on six. Someone tried to swipe the ball back from him and missed. You let Jordan sub, he said. We don't need any more subs. Dude, give us back the ball. Recess is almost over. I'll tell Mrs. Gordon you aren't letting me play. <laughs> Go ahead. Give us the ball back. If I make it, you have to let me play. He ran under the rim without dribbling and banked in a layup with both hands. None of us agreed to that. Evan grabbed the ball before the younger boy could catch it. You can sub for us. Everyone rolled their eyes and moaned. Hold on, said Tony. He can play if... He snatched the ball from Evan and, in the same motion, punted it. Dude! It was Evan's ball, a Christmas gift, genuine leather, just like they used in the NBA. It soared high, high up into the sky, and as the boys watched, it carried over the treetops, which formed the border of the school's property, and landed silently somewhere in the forbidden lands beyond that, in the forbidden lands beyond that boundary, known to everyone present as Dead Man's Creek. What the heck? What's wrong with you? Evan, unthinking, punched Tony in the stomach. He doubled over, but could only laugh. You can play with us when you bring the ball back. Instinctively, they all turned to locate the recess monitors. All were busy with other students, or chatting amongst themselves. Fine, said the fourth grader. Just make sure I don't get caught. There was a hole in the wire fence near where the playing field became wild prairie, partly shielded from the rest of the playground by brush and deadfall. Tony shooed most of the other boys back to the court so as not to draw attention to themselves or the vacuum of noise and rowdiness they'd left, and then held back a section of the fence while Bobby squeezed through. He did not look back and soon disappeared amongst the thickets and tall grass. The small cadre of boys left by the fence stood silently waiting, watching the empty space. The land beyond was wild and overgrown. None of them had ever ventured there, and they didn't know of anyone else who had either. The sounds of the playground seemed very far away now. His classmates looked like brightly painted ants to Evan, scurrying over the jungle gym and chasing each other across the wood chips. And then the bell rang. 
The boys looked at each other. Evan's stomach dropped. They waited, waited, ten, fifteen seconds, thirty felt like an hour. No sign of Bobby. Their classmates moved off the swings and monkey bars toward the school doors, formed into orderly lines. The wilderness beyond the fence was silent and still. Even their friends on the basketball court, having held out as long as they could, were being corralled. Kids were beginning to file back into the building. Bobby? Evan called out as loudly as he dared. No reply. The sound of the playground was fading by the second. Only a few stragglers left now, as the line grew smaller and smaller, swallowed up by the great red brick schoolhouse. Tony slugged Evan hard on the arm and ran off laughing. Jack watched him go, looked uncertainly at Evan, back at Tony, back at Evan, and then, with a shrug and an unspoken apology, galloped off after Tony, leaving Evan alone in the undergrowth, his arm throbbing, hanging limp at his side. The last of the students disappeared inside, and the teachers behind them, and still there was no sign of Bobby. Are you there? He called louder now. The school doors shut loudly and were locked. A cloud of gnats floated through a patch of sunlight, tall sun-crisp grass, the color of wheat, and long fallen branches, black and as gnarled as his grandmother's fingers on her deathbed. He remembered the ride home from the hospital, sitting on the stairs that night, past his bedtime, his mother wishing they hadn't let him see her that way. Too young, she said, too young. Before he could second-guess himself, he was crawling through the fence. The effort of doing the thing, of pulling himself through the narrow gap, kept his mind from considering the larger implications. Emerging on the other side, only a few feet from where he'd been standing, he found the world utterly changed. The light was brighter, more vivid, the smells more intense, the silence so immediate and so penetrating that it filled his whole body with a vague aching, a need to disrupt it. He swore they'd hear his footsteps all the way back in the classroom, crunching through weeds up to his waist, where about now all of the others must have been finding their desks, chatter dying down, bodies still buzzing with recess excitement. Right now Mrs. Paisley would be returning to class and opening her book, taking her place at the whiteboard and waiting for everyone's attention. Surely soon his absence would be noticed. As he emerged out of the dense line of trees, he found himself in an open sun-drenched field. Across a shallow muddy pond stood an old barn, her boards a natural brown, slowly rotting back into the earth which seemed to have burped it up in the first place. He traipsed farther in and saw no sign of Bobby or the ball. He didn't dare call out now. It felt as if the world were listening to him. It was said that the old farmer who'd settled this place back in the pioneer days had killed his wife and two young daughters before hanging himself in the barn. That was the story the kids told. Evan couldn't have said who originally told it to him. It was simply something everyone knew. He'd never seen the barn before, save for glimpses in the winter when it appeared as a denser patch of brown through the bare tree limbs against snowy slate skies. The girls he'd drowned in the pond. 
The ground was soft, and mud stained his cotton sock ankles, seeped in around the tops of his white tennis shoes, bought new for the school year only a month earlier, their foam steps still plush and spongy. A plane, far, far overhead, cut a trail across the bleached bone sky, the only evidence in this place that the outside world still existed at all. He looked for places where the bulrushes were broken or bent down where the ball might have landed. The empty black eyes of the barn observed him wherever he went. There was a great jagged hole in the roof which swallowed all light. In this isolated patch of the world, time seemed to stand still. Surely his empty desk would have been noticed by now, the alarm raised, everyone moving this way and that, trying and failing to suppress the rising anxiety in their voices, in their clipped questions to which they already knew the answer before they'd even finished asking them, by the look on their colleague's face, by the pit sinking ever deeper into their stomach. Have you seen him? Is he in the washroom? Evan paused, tilted his head to listen. He heard nobody. There was an open doorway on the side of the barn, guarded only by some tall grass. A flock of ducks emerged from the reeds, skimming the water, wings beating a hushed fft on the still air. Evan's heart missed a beat, and was still hammering to catch up as he approached the barn door. There was the ball, in the gray dirt and hay, its bright orange leather like a space object in all that decay. It took his eyes several seconds to adjust to the gloom within. He heard his own heart beating in his ears, his own ragged breath like a tornado in his chest. He was not alone. His body recognized it before his eyes. He wanted to run, grab the ball in both hands and fly from that place, from the must and damp that filled his lungs. Every nerve told him to go, go now, now. His body was ready, he could feel his legs carrying him, faster than he'd ever gone, feet barely grazing the earth. His muscles were twitching, begging to move, like sweaty wild-eyed horses in the moment before the stable doors finally flung open. He saw himself, carried weightless through the grass, over the fence in one leap, across the field and the playground in the hopscotch blacktop, through the heavy steel fire door with both fists, up the steps three at a time and into his classroom so fast that by the time anyone could look up he'd already be sliding easily into his desk, a lone bead of sweat sliding down his temple, the only evidence he hadn't been there all along. And when they asked, Where's Bobby? Have you seen Bobby? He'd just shrug, like everyone else. Last I saw him was at recess, yes, at the basketball court. But here he was, head buzzing, standing with iron feet in the doorway of this crumbling old barn, and there was Bobby with his back to Evan, and as Evan's eyes adjusted, he saw what the younger boy was looking at, what had transfixed him where he stood. A third among them, a man, his bulk, suspended in mid-air, hanging by the neck from the groaning rafters. School let out early that day. The dead man was soon identified as Ryan Tanley's father. He'd been up there for three days when Bobby and Evan found him. Ryan's mother and younger sister sold the house and moved away not long after the funeral. Rumors began to spread at coffee breakfasts and in the parking lot after PTA meetings that Ryan's father had been involved in his son's death, somehow. 
some even implicated responsibility, that he hung himself not out of grief, but remorse, or a fear of being found out. A few with the imagination and temperament for such wickedness even suggested darker, more nefarious histories of which the disappearance and suicide were only the culmination. fall stole into Prairie Grove on a gust of cold northern wind early one October morning, and the town awoke to find the grass crinkly and shimmering white with frost, the leaves of the trees painted brilliant scarlet and ochre. Farmers dotted the fields, harvesting sun up to sundown in the arrowhead shadows of fleeing geese, languid late summer blood rising to meet the chill, red knuckles and rosy cheeks, and at night they slept in clapboard bedrooms with turnip dirt in the creases of their hands and the warm glow of whiskey in their stomachs. The football team continued to win, and by the middle of the month even the old-timers were letting down their guard in their Saturday morning donut shop sports sections and paying attention with naked enthusiasm. Their skepticism had been hardened by the decades of fast starts petered out into 500 seasons and third-place finishes, annual November vindication of their jealous August grumblings about not as good as we were. But when you're winning, everyone wants to be involved. They bundled up Friday nights in their hunting jackets and ball caps, indicating which ship they'd served on, which war they'd fought in, and descended on the stadium like acolytes to a shrine. Nobody talked much about Ryan Tanley anymore, a notion that would have been unthinkable a month prior. His name was the subtext of every curbside mid-afternoon conversation with the postman, the tremble suppressed in every supper-time shout over dusky streets to wrangle free-roaming kids and cut short games of kick the can. An undefeated football team was something to talk about at the barber shop, something to fill the silence. The wolf was not heard for several weeks after the first real chill of the season, and word went around town that it had, quote, moved on. It was a warm Thursday night at what would prove to be the tale of a week-long Indian summer when the animal was heard again. Boys walking girls home from the pep rally felt them press a little closer beneath their arms, and for a moment, all shouting and laughter among those still lingering in the school parking lot died. Everyone out of doors for miles around stopped to listen. The same chill falling lightly atop every neck in Prairie Grove, like the first powder dusting of a long winter to come. For a moment, at the fevered height of their forgetting, they remembered. The following night, homecoming, the people of the town sought safety in numbers. They gathered like moths beneath the cloud of smoke and grill haze in that sizzling patch of electric daylight. The marching band filed on and off the stage, Evan and a dozen other boys 
buzzed in a cloud in the half-dark periphery of the spotlight, tossing a ball this way and that, enacting a half-sized send-up of the action that was about to take place on the field. It was an ideal time, everyone facing the same direction for two to three hours, for the younger kids and second siblings to steal off into the liminal activities and streetlight shadows of the town, shades and sneakers making hushed swing-set oaths, and plans whispered over dusty picnic tables lost somewhere beneath the crickets and bullfrog crooning. One of the fourth graders had seen Ryan in their window a few nights prior. In the story, as received by Evan, the boy was shirtless and wore a red nylon dog collar around his neck. Tony's brother was on the football team, a backup wide receiver, so taking up Greg Grandel's dare to stand in every room in the Nickerson house would be Evan and Jack alone. There were only four rooms, as the house had been one story since at least as long as any of their parents could remember, though some who gave the dare insisted, as Greg did, on a little-known fifth room that would have to be breached, a cellar whose door was hidden or buried somewhere on the property. The pair walked some twenty minutes, their backs turned on the once all-encompassing sounds of the game. Whistles and girlish cheers, big hollow bass drums and chesty brass bands, the chatter of the crowd and irregular crackling PA announcements growing more faint, more distant, sideline screams like gnats trying to escape a jar. The stadium glowed like a gem in the night behind them, a lone holdout in all that dark, a beacon where all visible life for three counties was gathered. The tall, craggled chimney appeared like a beckoning finger against the night sky. A gust of wind shivered the prairie grass. By now, standing in all of the rooms was more a formality than a challenge. A ritual passed down from a time when that would have meant more than simply stepping over a six-inch ridge of brick and crumbled plaster to move between the kitchen and the dining room. The point was to stand on the old foundation, not just slap the chimney and run, but to linger, to let the place do whatever it intended to do with you. At this point, it was hardly different than standing on any patch of the surrounding prairie, in theory. Anyone who'd done it would tell you that it was. It was very different. A quarter moon hung bulbous and heavy-seeming just over the top of the distant trees. It was just enough light to navigate by once their eyes had adjusted to the country dark. I had a dream about this place, said Jack. It was a lot like this. You were here. There were bats, and it was just real quiet. It was so, so quiet. What happened? Those people showed up from the baseball field. What did they do? I don't know. I woke up. The house had a presence which far outweighed what little of the masonry physically remained. It twists your stomach like a rope just to stand next to it. 
but both boys bit their lip and went bravely to their task without wincing. There was nothing to it. A pair of bats fluttered chittering from the chimney, nothing more. And even still, each of them wanted nothing more once they had finished than to sprint the entire way home and slam the door shut behind them and not even think of opening it again till the sun was nice and high in the sky. Each vaguely suspected that the other might feel as they did, but neither would ever speak so much as a syllable of this desire aloud. So instead, they each went into the yard to kick around for an old cellar door. It felt like they were courting some unnameable disaster with every minute they passed there. The moon slipped behind a passing cloud. Evan? Jack called his name meekly from the other side of the house. Evan made his way around the corner. You really had to watch every step out here and saw Jack's silhouette standing maybe thirty yards away. He was not moving. What? He did not respond, and Evan's eyes began to drift, scanning. There was another shape, another darkness, too dense for the night. The sheer size of it sent a chill racing across his back. The clouds parted slightly, and Evan saw what it was, though his mind would not believe it for several seconds. The wolf. His dark moonspark eyes were locked on the boy. The gaze paralyzed him where he stood. But the standoff did not become real until the wolf moved. One lithe paw landed easily in front of the other. He turned his body several degrees, as if to circle around Evan's right shoulder. Head angled low, gliding inches above the dirt, gaze fixed always on the boy. It maintained its distance, and Evan turned to track him. He could hear it snuffling, testing the air. His fur was dark, plush, streaked with white and gray. He lifted his forepaw and paused, held it at an angle, swiveled his neck a bit, and turned toward Evan. The boy let out a small whimper. He knew if he ran, the animal would pounce. Predator instinct. His dog did the same, and he could see it happening in his mind, three seconds into the future, even as every fiber of muscle in his legs ached and cried out for him to move. But something in the steady and assured nature of the wolf's approach helped to stay his twitching nerves. What had been a completely normal day only minutes ago, without a single thought given to the notion of his own mortality, could be his last and this would be all the time he had to think about it. The two made eye contact, and Evan could feel Jack watching, could feel his friend's throat stopped with fear. Nearer and nearer drew the beast. Evan saw the moonlight glint on his black basketball leather nose, the scar on his ear, the heart-stopping size of his paws, his gleaming claws. He was too young and too frightened to articulate it, but he did not see hate, in the wolf's eyes. Nor did he see the dead, unfeeling machinery of death which he saw behind the black marble eyes of the sharks at the aquarium. Hey! Hey! Leave him alone! Jack was jumping in place, waving his arms. The wolf stopped and turned his head to look. He regarded him for a moment, a strange sideshow, and then returned his attention to Evan. No! No! 
He was only feet from the boy now, and Evan wondered if his pointed ears could hear his heart thumping, hot blood pumping through his limbs. The animal's eyes were coldly self-assured, but held only a guarded curiosity. He jutted his massive head forward and began to sniff the boy's arm. As if by instinct, he lifted his hand to pet him. The wolf did not resist. As far as Evan ever knew, he and Jack were the only ones in all the prairie grove to actually see the wolf that fall. Neither ever told anyone. After that night, they never even spoke of it with each other. On the walk home, Jack told Evan that when he'd awoken from his dream, the foot of his bed had been covered in dirt. Jack was not at school that Monday, and his seat at the lunch table between Tony and Evan sat empty. Nobody knew where he was, but a potent, nameless kernel of dread festered in Evan's stomach until the phone rang that night and he heard his friend's voice on the other end. Can you come over tomorrow, after school? My mom's working till six. At 3.15, Jack greeted him at the door. Dude, you gotta see this. Jack's family lived in a ranch duplex, and Jack led Evan through the living room and out the sliding glass door onto the back patio. Here, a privacy fence ran the length of the patio, dividing the two properties, though the strip of backyard was open and undivided. Jack took Evan around the fence and onto the neighboring patio, which was only a blank slab of concrete bearing the shadow imprints of furniture long gone. Compared to the table, grill, flower pots, and scattered toys on the other side, it was stark naked. Check this out. With a glance around, the yard was backed up by a half mile of marshland and chattering red-winged blackbirds. He slid open the glass door. What are you doing? The neighbors moved out last week and nobody else has moved in. I was homesick yesterday and I don't know what even gave me the idea, but I figured out it was unlocked. What's it like in there? Weird. The same, only backward. And empty. It was indeed empty. The carpet silence and springy drywall echo gave Evan a funny thrill. They explored the place over the course of perhaps five minutes, Evan in awed silence, and Jack, proud of his discovery, enjoying his friend's discovering. I was thinking of asking Tony to bring his brother's airsoft guns over tomorrow. What would the teams be? Jack shrugged. Every man for himself? How does that even work? We could do capture the flag, he thought about it. First to get both other flags wins. They looked around, absorbing the blank walls, the squared depressions in the carpet where dressers had once sat. I call living room base. That's a big area to defend. More space to hide. Hide where? More space to build forts. We can build forts? Sure, bring whatever materials you need. Well, I want the kitchen base. What? No. Why? Then you'll be able to see all of my plans from there. You have to go in one of the bedrooms. No, I got plans of my own. That night at dinner, mouth half full of mashed potatoes, Evan asked his mom, 
again, she said. His mom doesn't mind you coming there two days in a row? Nah. He shook his head. Her voice was firm, but he could sense a lack of will behind it. This was only a token resistance. Well, I don't know if I can even drive you. I'll ride the bus home with him. She frowned a little. Fine. The next afternoon, Tony showed up on his bike with an armory in his backpack. Two pistols and a clear plastic submachine gun, plus a spring-powered shotgun, which he called dibs on. Well, who gets that? Evan pointed at the automatic. Me, Tony said. You guys get the pistols. We have to take turns, said Jack. No way, it's mine. My brother said only I could use them. Then you're going to win every game. Not true. Did you bring the box? Tony's parents had recently bought a new bed, and he'd volunteered the box as fort-building material. I tried. I couldn't get it on my bike. What the heck? So we don't have any bases? It's going to be so stupid. Who cares? We can do that this weekend. My parents will be home this weekend. But let's just play anyways and while we can. And they played anyways, giggling and occasionally yelping at a mad leap from one room to another, but mostly hiding and peeping around door jams to take plinking little pot shots at each other. Deciding that it was time to implement his grand plan to bait Jack into the open, into his line of fire in the kitchen, Evan planted his flag, a red rag his dad used when he worked on the car, in plain view on the counter, and then silently climbed into the cabinet to wait. It did not take long. The back and forth between Jack and Tony quieted, and a minute later, through the crack in the cabinet door, he saw Jack tiptoeing wide-eyed onto the linoleum, gun raised by his ear. Evan held his breath, nerves tingling, and waited till Jack was in the middle of the room, till he could not miss. And then, wham, he flung open the door, nearly snapping it against its hinges. Pop, 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 pop. One hand on the trigger and the other on the slide, he sent a barrage of plastic at Jack, who squealed and lifted an arm to cover his face, backing blindly toward the exit. Eventually he managed to get off a couple of wild shots. One hit the ceiling, one the sink. Evan ran out of ammunition and pulled the door closed to reload. He could hear Jack muttering curses in the other room. And then with a savage yop, Tony came crashing into the living room. Thwop, 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 the little electric motor and his gun whining, unloading BBs into Jack. He snagged the flag and retreated to the master bedroom down the hall. Jack chased after him and took cover in the bathroom, and then the whole thing settled back into a stalemate. That was when Evan heard something wrong. Something that made his ears prickle before he'd identified what it was or why it was that his heart was racing. A shuffling from outside. Footsteps. Adult voices. Jingling of keys. He saw shadows on the frosted front door glass. He nearly fell out of the cabinet. Polite laughter from outside. He saw the back door waiting for him, the sunlit lawn. Instead, he sprinted down the hall, calling as loudly as he could without being loud. He bounded silent in stocking feet to the end of the hall where he was pelted from both sides, a flurry of springs and future welts he'd have to explain to his mother. Someone's here. Everything stopped. After a moment of silent hesitation, they ran. 
The key was grinding in the lock when they spilled into the living room. Tony and Jack bolted for the back door, and so did Evan until he noticed the rag on the counter. Frozen in indecision, the lock clicked home, and the doorknob began to turn. He glanced back. Jack was halfway out the door, Tony already on the patio waiting. Evan swung around the corner back into the kitchen and grabbed the rag. Too late. The door opened. He was cut off. He dove into the cabinet and closed the door behind him. Heavy footsteps entered. He felt the shift in the air. Water is included. It's an extra $30 a month for trash. And you'd be responsible for gas, electric, phone. Mm, high ceilings. A man's voice. I love that texture. A woman's. The cacophony of six feet stepping into the kitchen. Oh, I love those countertops, said the woman. They're very nice. You've got a gas range, a full-size stove. Does this seem like enough cabinet space, honey? Asked the man. At our last place, they were so shallow, we couldn't even uh, store some of her bowls in them. Hmm. Her voice was airy, like a piece of fine-grained sandpaper caught in the wind. One of the cabinet doors opened. Evan's heart stopped, but it wasn't his. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Quick creak of hinges, another door opened. Daylight spilled into Evan's little cave. A woman's head poked in, three doors to his right. And are there two bathrooms? The master is a half-bath. Evan cracked the cabinet enough to see as they left. Something in those voices was intensely familiar, though he could not place it. Someone from school's parents? The woman's haircut. Where had he seen her before? They shuffled down the hall. Evan remained put. A lot of natural light, said the woman. Plenty of windows, that's for sure. And what's that? she asked. Evan tilted his head to try and see more. One of the men was squatting, picking at the carpet. The landlord stood, holding a little orange dot between his thumb and forefinger and squinting at it. A BB. He ran a hand through what was left of his hair and gazed suspiciously at the unit around him. What is it? asked the man. There was no response. So uh, this is the master bedroom and a uh, crawl space for all your holiday decorations. Evan slipped out of the kitchen and made his escape. That night, a little after midnight, Jack was woken by headlights cutting across his bedroom window, an engine idling in the driveway. Peering through the blinds, he saw a purple minivan waiting there, so plumb dark that the rust eating its way up the side panels blended into the paint job. There were three people moving about. Two of them carried a large blanket-draped box out of the trunk, while the third held the door open to the conjoined unit. They were gone a few minutes later, and not long after, Jack was back asleep. He'd hardly remember the incident when he awoke in the morning, but if he'd been in the cabinet earlier that day with Evan, he might have recognized the woman's distinct blonde hairdo. The next week was Halloween, Tuesday the 30th. The boys sat around the lunch table, surrounded by sandwich crust and empty milk cartons, and plotted their evening. Toilet paper, eggs. Evan balked, but said nothing. 
They would be in middle school next year. This was the sort of thing that they did now, he supposed. Tony was already talking about this being their last year of trick-or-treating. Evan had learned to appreciate a good ding-dong ditch, even if he'd never yet had the nerve to ring a doorbell himself, only ever hid laughing in the safety of a nearby shrub. But the property damage gave him pause. He did not know how he was supposed to explain the missing items to his mother, either. A few rolls of teepee might go unnoticed, but half a dozen eggs surely would not. Oh well. He felt sometimes that his mother could see through him, see his intentions and his heart, and in situations like these seemed to have a well-developed sense of the pressures of being a boy, of growing up, and even if she'd never admitted or let him off entirely, she'd be soft beneath whatever brittle shell decorum dictated she put on, like a hard-boiled egg, because there was an unspoken and ageless understanding between them. What is there to be gained from rebellion if there is nothing to rebel against? On some level, she knew he had to take the eggs, and he knew she had to punish him. For several weeks, Ryan Tanley's name was rarely mentioned in town, but as Halloween approached, some had begun to mutter behind closed doors about whether they ought to let their kids, or any kids at all, go trick-or-treating. The boys did not speak of him, but his name was ever-present in each of their minds as they slipped out of bedroom windows and mudroom doors and down to the dark streets. He was a black chasm beneath their feet, a sense of real danger lurking beneath the pranks and jokes, a taste of a world they had never known. When a police cruiser rolled down the street with its lights off, they bolted into a strip of woods that separated two neighborhoods. The moon was full, or near it, and the trees were thinning or barren, so even on the bike trails they navigated back toward their houses, there was enough light to see by. A siren broke the silence, and for a moment they thought it was the police that they'd been discovered. It was, in fact, the wolf, lamenting to the moon, close enough to make the boys shiver in their hoodies. There was that chasm again, now in their stomachs. They expected to cross midnight paths with many of their classmates, but had walked around for nearly an hour and seen nobody. Jack had been complaining from the start of being tired, so they decided to call it early. Said he'd been woken up the past couple of nights by some animal that was evidently being kept next door, or maybe it too had snuck in and was living there, whining and whimpering through the walls. The second time it happened, he'd woken his parents, but by then the noises had stopped and he thought maybe it was something else he was hearing, or even that he'd imagined it entirely. Before they parted ways, they agreed to meet at Jack's house before trick-or-treating and to convene there afterward to trade and eat candy. The following day at noon, the elementary school held their annual Halloween parade. In the morning, Evan's teacher poured little paper cups of apple cider for the class and passed out pumpkin donuts and then turned off the lights and read them ghost stories. At lunch, his mother picked him up and took him through a drive through the hamburger, the feeling of being out in the world at midday, an hour when he should have been in school, was a rush. Then he was home to change into his costume. He was a knight in dully reflective plastic armor, complete with sword, not allowed at school, shield, 
and a helm with a movable visor which rendered him all but blind when pulled into place. Jack practically glowed in the October sun in his white and foil astronaut costume. Tony wore a black hoodie and jeans and carried a plastic drugstore mask in his pocket. Over lunch, he dyed his hair in neon green. Where are you supposed to be? asked a teacher. He shrugged. The parents were lined up along the sidewalk with cameras out, a few in token costume pieces of their own. They cheered and laughed as the monsters and superheroes and pop stars filed past. Evan blushed as they passed his mother. He put his arm around Tony for a photo as they passed his family. He wasn't sure how to pose. He wished he had the wooden sword his father had helped him carve and paint. When they turned the last corner of the route and came around on the far side of the school, Evan saw them almost immediately. Four adults in shabby suits and old, sun-faded sundresses with fraying hems and furry plastic sheep masks with dead, black-eyed stares. He tried to avoid looking like he saw them as he passed, but he was certain that they were watching him the whole way. The sky was orange and the sun, fast falling like a bleeding tangerine, when the three boys emerged upon the leaf-scraped and laughing streets, the burnt air punctuated by the joy-startled screams and squeals of candy-laden kids kick-swishing across ankle-deep leaf lawns, wading, tumbling door-to-door, capes and tails twisting in the amber twilight. They hit nine houses and made it to the end of the block before the streetlights came on. Night descended quickly then. It would be November in six hours, and the weight of winter could be felt waiting in the wings, gathering bluster amongst the haunted and barren trees in the woodlands outside of town. They'd all seen the people in the sheep masks at the parade, and all secretly dreaded that they might see them again that evening. They covered a few streets more, and by then it was full dark, and they had to cut across an old cemetery to reach the next neighborhood a newer development full of bigger houses and bigger payloads of candy and chocolate. Nobody had been buried in the cemetery for over a century. It was established when the town was little more than a few farm families in the church, which had long ago relocated closer to downtown. Many of the markers were broken or illegible, but the town's first mayor was buried there, as was its first murderer, a 15-year-old boy who killed his parents and two sisters with an axe while they slept. So the story goes. They say the wind made him do it. And the black char on the trunk of the sprawling oak near the middle of the grounds was put there by a bolt of lightning which struck as he was being lowered into the earth. So the story goes. Was that them? The boys froze halfway across, their eyes still bordering on useless in the absence of the streetlights. There was movement behind an obelisk off to the left, flash of white. 
They held their breath, waited. But it was only a pair of teenagers making out. They covered the adjacent neighborhood in about an hour. By the time they were ready to move on, the crowds had thinned to a trickle. Most of the younger kids were back home, behind locked doors and brightly lit rooms, and some of the houses were turning off their decorations. A few were already dark. When they stopped a moment and listened, they were struck by how quiet the night had become, and debated making an effort to visit some of the outlying houses. Mr. Granderson is never home. He is, he's just deaf in one ear. I'm not wasting the last hour of the night ringing a deaf guy's doorbell. The curfew which the town had set for the night in the wake of Ryan's disappearance came and went, and they headed for home the long way around, filling their pillowcases a bit more for their trouble wherever a friendly porch appeared. Gusts of wind blew at their back as they went, howling down otherwise deserted streets. The chasm was staring them straight in the face, daring them to return its gaze. Each time they plodded down a driveway with a bit more candy, Evan felt himself pulled strongly toward home, as if everyone else knew something they didn't, and they were risking something simply by remaining outside, which no amount of sugar could ever be worth. More and more houses were silent. Dark windows seemed to stare in moral judgment as they passed, but they soldiered on, intent to squeeze the night for everything it was worth, no one wanting to be the first to suggest that they make a break for home. Was it just Evan, or had it grown colder at some point? The chilly breeze which had stirred and thrilled the blood only a few hours ago now seemed to carry only malice. The dark and dead and deflated decorations were no longer festive. Their haunted visages seemed instead to mock the boys, to mock the very idea that there had ever been joy. Evan's leg was beginning to hurt where his sword banged against it when he walked. They traveled a whole block and saw no houses with lights on to welcome them, saw no other trick-or-treaters roving the street. The wind was most assuredly colder now, blowing harder and with more regularity. Even the distant screams and laughter had died down, and the whole town was eerily silent. They were tired, legs aching, forearms burning, and had to resist the urge to drag their heavy candy pillowcases along the sidewalk the rest of the way back to Jack's house. Jack's mom only waved at them from the couch and asked if they had fun as they filed past on their way to Jack's room. Evans would have had a lot more to say if she'd seen them coming in this late. This was why they spent time at Jack's, even if he did not always have the newest game console or the biggest backyard. They closed his bedroom door and dumped their candy into three little mountains. They stuffed their mouths full of caramel and goopy chocolate and bartered through stuck and smacking teeth like old stock traders. The floor was soon carpeted with crinkling gold and silver wrappers, red and blue and yellow translucent. A knock on the door. Jack's mother poked her head in to say goodnight. Finally satiated, the boys crept out to the darkened living room and Jack turned on the TV. One of the Halloween sequels was mid-showing. A moon-faced Michael Myers was chasing a screaming woman around a blue-shadowed house. Evan looked at the room around him, the depths of the darkness just outside the TV's glow. It was nothing like the movie. It was much scarier.
and then you fell asleep. When he awoke a few minutes later, both of his friends were asleep, and a new Halloween movie had started, was in the opening credits. That was when he heard it, soft at first, so that he did not even recognize it as separate from the movie's soundtrack. But eventually the movie went to commercial, and the noises did not stop. Evan's mind sparked to life, rose from dreary, swampy half-sleep to focus in on the sound. He took the remote from Jack's clammy sleeping hand and muted the TV and listened. Nothing at first. Had he imagined it? Dreamt it? Tony snored and shifted on the couch. The wind outside died down, and the whole world was as quiet as the grave. Then he heard it. From the other side of the wall, the other apartment, a soft crying? A muffled wailing that turned Evan's blood into ice water. He stood and crossed the room silently, perched on the balls of his feet and pressed his ear to the drywall. The noises sounded alien and inhuman one moment, and completely human the next. Far away one moment, at the very edge of his hearing, and shudderingly near the next, so close that he could feel his heart skip a beat and the blood drain from his face. When the front door opened, his feet left the ground by half a foot, his head smacked against the wall, and he tumbled back onto the couch, pretending to be asleep, like a gangly manic deer reacting on pure instinct to the snapping of a twig in the woods. But it was not Jack's front door that had opened. It was the neighboring apartments. The commotion woke both of his friends, blinking and rubbing the drool from their chins. Evan whispered, There's someone next door. They sat up straight and listened. Evan had not even noticed the sound of the car pulling into the driveway. Several sets of feet stepped softly around the apartment next door. Evan returned to the wall and heard hushed voices conversing, though he could not make out anything that was said. His friends watched him, barely breathing. A few minutes later, the voices stopped. The door opened and closed once more, and then a car pulled out of the driveway and was gone, and the woolly silence held sway once more. None of the boys spoke, for it felt like a very long time, and then Jack stood and went to the back door. Without a word, he unlatched the lock and stepped outside. The others followed. Something in the night air had changed and had taken on a sinister and nasty aftertaste, and the cold bit at their cheeks and noses. Around the abbreviated fence they went. Jack tried the back door. It was still unlocked. He glanced back now at the other two, hesitating on the precipice. The inside of the apartment was the sort of dark that ate holes in your stomach, an existential dark. Steeled, Jack entered. Evan and Tony followed, closing the door behind and sealing themselves inside with the ear-ringing quiet. For a while, none of them dared move. Even a small footstep on the creaking floor would be loud enough to shatter their nerves. Jack still had his flashlight from trick-or-treating, which seemed impossibly distant now. He flipped it on and led the others deeper into the house. The circle of cold light made the blank canvas of the empty house look like a crime scene. Nothing in the living room, nothing in the kitchen. I heard it, 
said Evan. Hurt what? The animal. Jack stopped. Tonight? He nodded. There was nothing in the bedrooms either, or in the bathroom. Do you think it was the werewolf? asked Tony. The car passed on the street outside and the boys froze. Jack turned off his light, but the car kept moving and soon was heard no more. What about the crawl space? asked Evan. Jack's face lit up. He had not even considered this. They hurried to the master bedroom and Jack opened the closet door. On the floor, so dim that the flashlight would have washed it out, so dim anyone glancing in the closet would almost surely miss it, was a thin square of light. Jack bent to a knee and dug his fingers into the carpet. Then he pulled up a section of the floor on squeaking hinges. The unfinished, dusty little crawl space seemed a grotesque aberration in the safe and banal gray-carpeted beige-paint fabric of daily reality. They forgot to turn off the light, said Jack. What's down there? Nobody moved. Nobody wanted to go any farther. But finally Tony stepped forward, and with a sigh, descended the few rickety folding steps. With one look back up at his friends, he crawled beneath them and disappeared from view. How big is it? Evan asked Jack. He just shook his head. He could not take his eyes from the empty concrete floor and pink tufts of insulation. Tony? He called softly. No answer. Tony? Louder now, a hint of urgency threatening to break through. No answer. Jack and Evan looked at each other, and in the other's eyes each boy saw only fear. Evan descended first, followed closely by Jack. They found Tony not far from the ladder, his back turned as if he had not heard their approach. A naked bulb cast his shadow long and gaunt ahead of him, where it eventually melted into the shadows. The crawlspace seemed to extend unbroken beneath the entire footprint of the house above. It was empty except for one thing, which sat in half-darkness some ten feet in front of where Tony had stopped. Evan crept closer, his eyes adjusted. It was a beige plastic dog crate, suitable in size for a Labrador or Poodle. And now Evan heard it, what must have frozen Tony in place. A stochastic, scraping sound. A grinding. When they had crouched there a minute, it was Jack who finally gathered the nerve and crawled around to the other side of the crate. The sparse light fell in little dots and slashes through the air holes. Inside, there was only a rat, occupied by a gnarled and half-gnawed rawhide bone. He shined his light, there was a half-full water bowl, another bowl with a pile of moldy, wet dog food, attended to by flies and a pair of roaches. More flies atop a pile of feces on a spread of old newspaper in the opposite corner. And in the near corner of the thing, near the door, a black and orange giant's baseball cap. 
The police and local news were there the next day with caution tape and cameras and little numbered placards for the evidence. Evan told them everything he remembered about the people in the sheet masks, and the officer took detailed notes, but when he asked him if he thought they'd find Ryan now, he could only wince and purse his lips. I hope so, he said. I, I don't know. I don't know. The search reignited. Police sketches of the four strangers went up all over town and spread into the neighboring communities. They searched in earnest until Thanksgiving. By the time the calendar turned to December, hope had been all but abandoned for a second time. In the second week of December, the football team came home from downstate with a second-place trophy. But that did not do too much to dampen people's holiday spirits. In the end, a fairly merry Christmas was enjoyed in Prairie Grove. They never found Ryan or anyone associated with his disappearance. Nobody in the town ever heard from his mother or sister again. Evan grew up. He went to junior high, to high school, to college. He did not forget about Ryan, but eventually he did not think of him very much either. You don't think about being 12 every day when you were 22, and Ryan would always be 12. Maybe, Evan sometimes thought, when he did think of his old friend usually lying in bed late on some fall or late summer night. He was out there somewhere, an adult he would never recognize in some faraway land. He didn't like to think about that, to imagine him with a patchy beard or a face beginning to crease and wrinkle, with a budding pot belly and aching knees. But they never found any 12-year-old body. They never buried any fifth-grade boy. After that autumn, no wolf was ever seen or heard in Prairie Grove again. On Christmas Eve, the old barn at Dead Man's Creek burned down. The fire department called it arson, but no suspect was ever apprehended. When a few years had passed, a young couple from California bought the old Tamley place and moved in. Nobody ever told them about the previous residence, and they never asked. The football team never again made it to the championship game. When Evan was 29 and had been living in another far-off state for several years, he returned to Prairie Grove for his mother's retirement and found that the remains of the old barn next to the elementary school were gone. The pond had been paved over for a parking lot. An empty office building stood where the barn once had. After the party, he drove out to see the old baseball field. It had been long neglected, and the grass in the outfield had grown to nearly the height of the fence. The scoreboard, which hadn't worked even when he was young, was bleached to near illegibility and crawling with vines. The jungle was still faintly sponsored by Pepsi-Cola and some community trust. It was a gray and chilly day in May, and it was hard to tell if it was lunchtime or near sunset. He parked the car and stared out at the wreckage, the reclamation. He half expected to see the people in the sheet masks walking out of the woods. It was beginning to grow dark. A crazier thought occurred to him, which was that if he had a light, and maybe a machete, 
he might find Ryan somewhere in that dense tangle. Probably the last ball he hit was still buried in the mud somewhere in the woods beyond left field. He thought for a moment of going to look for it. Instead, he restarted his car, flicked on the headlights, and drove back to his parents' house. For a while, he could think of nothing else but Ryan, the ball field, the black-eyed ovine masks watching them from the woods. Then the streetlights came on. He turned on the radio and forgot all about them. Epilogue. If not for the blank water tower and the little suburban settlements far off in the twilight distance in either direction, it could have been 1798. It could have been before Christ. A quadrangle of geese flew south against the steel blue and pastel turnip sunset, and by their chatter he could hear them flying still when the light had gone into the dark, and where in that vast shivering prairie night they finally bedded, no man could say. Huddled together in some reedy cold muttered place, known only to the crickets and the frogs, chins nuzzled into familiar feathers to pass the frostbit night. Something was following the tramp, stalking him across that abridged, untamed plain, and the tilled and frozen pumpkin patches picked clean of all but the runts and the rotten. He heard movement in the brush alongside, keeping pace. A smell of decay lingered pungent in the air. The wind stung and the mauve-tinged clouds billowed and roiled. By the morning, there would be snow. He walked faster, glancing back with every few steps he took. He knew, against what his meager eyes could provide, that he was not alone. But equally he sensed, with something beyond any of his senses, no hunger and no malice. Curiosity was closer, but didn't quite cut it either. No, the predator was doing his due diligence as master of the prairie and he knew the hunger would return, as it always did. 
the tramp's boots broke through thin ice, and looking around, he saw the bulrushes and realized he'd nearly walked into a pond. An old ramshackle and natural-colored barn stood blocking out the stars to his left. The door was open. He ascended in darkness to the loft by a series of matches. His feet were already beginning to stiffen atop the creaking ladder boards, boot leather squelching icy streamlets which each time cut through the numbness anew. The floor was solid, so he dragged two hay bales to the center of the loft and lay his blanket across them. The air inside was warmer than it ought to have been, and heavy in the lungs. There was a small hole in the roof through which he could see stars, though it allowed none of their light to pass inside, which remained uniformly black, a darkness beyond the eye's comprehension, the visual equivalent of a bass note of a frequency beneath human hearing and so the hole was the only interruption in an absolute darkness which obliterated space and proportion. He had a faint notion, from his matches and his impressions of the structure's exterior, of where the walls might be, should he set out groping to find one. But as he settled into the straw, he felt even that slipping, and in that dark he could not be so sure each wall was not a mile away, or a quarter inch from his toes. It was quiet enough inside to elicit a ringing in his ears, the outside world dampened and lost in the aged and weathered timber. He curled his toes to make sure that he still could, and heard the squeaking of his boots. For a minute, he thought he heard someone beneath him, breathing. Though each time he held his own breath, he became less sure. He was very tired, but... For a long time he could not sleep. It was too quiet, too dark, the air weighing like another blanket atop his prone form. And was there someone else in here, listening to every shift of his body on the hay? No, no. Eventually he began to drift. Sleep came over him in easy waves, and then he was awake. The rapid beating of his heart told him something was wrong. Some outside stimulus had stirred him. What had he heard? He stopped moving, stopped breathing. In the dark he would be invisible. Then he heard it again. A shuffling. A whisper of... What was it? It came again. hay bales sliding over the wood floor. His heart threatened to leap from his ribcage. He was invisible. He could stay still, as still as stone, but surely his beating heart could be heard for a mile in every direction. The silence was unbearable now. unmistakably intentional, no mental shelter of reasonable doubt about wind or mice, raccoons, to which he could return. The next time the hay bale moved, it was toward him, and then, again, closer. He tore at the matchbook in his pocket, struck one. There were indeed, perhaps, perhaps a dozen bales of hay scattered about the loft, he could not be so sure which he heard moving.
The closest was no more than a dozen feet from him. The match burned down, scorched his fingers. The cherry head glowed like a cardinal on the knotty pine and died, and all he could do was listen, or light another. There had been bales between he and the ladder, and he looked at the hole in the ceiling and guessed that he could reach it if, for some reason, he had to. Shh! They were moving on both sides of him now, and closer, he lit another match. He thought, though in the long, grim shadows, how could he ever be sure that some of the bales were placed subtly differently than last he had glimpsed them. The nearest certainly felt closer. He tossed the lit match, and it landed on the floor amidst a grouping of them. The flame fluttered but steadied, survived a moment, and out from behind the bales cast wicked, non-Euclidean Rorschach shadows around the room like a demented, half-melted magic lantern, and then it was consumed, matchstick licked black, and the last purplish glow was reabsorbed into the darkness which waited at the end of the universe. He'd only two remaining. He thought he might have a heart attack. Is this what they mean when they say, died of fright? Scared to death? Something grazed and then poked sharply into the back of his neck. He screamed. The primal roar echoed and died, absorbed into the silence, into the weathered old wood. It had only been a stray straw, a stray straw, and nothing more. But it was all too much to bear, and he made up his mind to leave. If he could find the ladder, he could be back out in the open air again in less than a minute. He was about to stand when he heard the creak of a ladder board, one of the lower steps. But the next report he heard was distinctly nearer. He felt a twinge in his chest and thought that he really was having a heart attack, and he laid there a moment and waited. But he did not die. And when he heard another step, farther still up the ladder, he decided that he had to go. He could escape through the hole in the ceiling. He must, must. The ladder groaned more than halfway to him now, but he could not move. His limbs refused to ruffle the straw even a little. Nearly a minute passed in silence. The next step on the ladder was nearly to the top. It pierced the tramp like a shot from a starting gun. But he could not move. His limbs lay anchored in concrete fear. He was invisible. If he could only stay invisible. And then... He felt something in the bales beneath him shift. He ran for the corner of the room, leaving his blanket, jumped for the hole in the ceiling, and instantly knew he had grossly underestimated its height. He didn't even get close. In a panic, he shoved a hay bale beneath the hole, then turned it on end and scrambled to the top. He struggled to his feet, 
balanced a moment, reached skyward, jumped to close the final inch, grasped, slipped, held. He pulled himself onto the roof with a strength he had not known he possessed, and paused there on the ledge, catching his breath, staring into the black abyss he'd just climbed out of. When his breathing had calmed somewhat, he began to hear something coming from the darkness, which caused him to light a match and peer back into the barn. He saw his haystack stepladder, the floor, his blanket. He could not see to the ladder. The flame buckled in a gust of cold wind, nipped at his fingers, and was gone. He turned and for the first time looked out over the edge at the ground below. He guessed that he could survive the fall, but it would be an unpleasant landing. A rustling below. Someone, something, was climbing atop the hay bale. He struck his last match, bumped his arm and fumbled it, watched it fall into the abyss. It landed in the hay bale. Soon the tinder was lit, and the flames quickly spread, slowly illuminating the loft. On his hands and knees, the tramp stared down into the barn, eyes probing, focusing and unfocusing. He limped some fifty yards from the barn before collapsing to rest. The fire was now visible from the outside and growing hotter. There would be no saving it. He sat there in the tall grass for a while, face turned to the warmth. Nearly an hour had passed when he saw the red lights of incoming fire engines. Not long after they arrived, the barn collapsed in upon itself in a great heavenly migration of firefly sparks. By then, the man was gone, disappeared into the fabric of the night. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our story for the evening. Before we leave you, I would like to remind you once more about our sponsor for tonight's episode, Magic Mind, the newest addition to My Morning Ritual. 
I put a lot of time into each of these stories, and even though I often feel exhausted by the time I've finished writing each one, the work is only just beginning. I still need to edit it, then take the type or handwritten pages onto the computer, and then record it, which often means staying up all hours of the night or driving my van to some quiet place outside of the city in the middle of the woods, or maybe both. Even then, I still need to edit the recording and add production, and by the end of it, you can see why I'll often have two, three, four cups of coffee throughout the day. Sometimes I'll stop and notice that my muscles have been tensed for hours without my even realizing it, or I'll be extra irritable for seemingly no reason. Every little new thing that goes wrong seems like a catastrophe, like the end of the world. I'm sure you've been there. Then I think about how much caffeine I've chugged, and it sort of starts to make sense. But not with Magic Mind. Magic Mind's matcha slow releases the caffeine, which gives me a less drastic, more sustained energy throughout the entire process of producing an episode of Goblin Market. If you'd like to try something today, you can. For 20% off or 56% off a subscription for a limited time, with my discount code NOLAN20. That's my name 20, N-O-L-A-N 2-O, at magicmind.com slash Nolan. Thanks.